And we don't officially start until next week. But I've been very excited. I've written probably five and a half of the lessons so far, at least sketched them out. I've got a lot to do to make these these what I want them to be. And yes, I have uh, decided I wanted to do a cartoon. Now, the problem is I can't draw, but I can do computer PowerPoint. And so um, I think it was one night we were in uh, Croatia and Becky was asleep and I was trying not to make any noise. So I decided this cartoon came to me because I couldn't go to sleep. So I just got on my computer and I made it. I don't have it in the PowerPoint. It's in the lesson. If you do not get it, that's okay. Becky told me nobody's going to get it. But in my head, it was really funny. So um, uh, I've also got a cartoon in the second one. I may have run out of ideas after that. But I've got two comic strips uh, so far for the Greek geek. And uh, you'll get to see that. Okay, let's talk this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to try and be timely. I'm going to try and let you out on time. But this is your tasting. Class does not start until next Sunday. I'm telling you, lesson number one and two are pretty good. But I really like lesson number three. So I'm tempted to just change and make it number one. The problem is we'd be starting out real good and then it'd peter out and y'all would say, well, gee, he used all of his stuff up in the first lesson. So you just got to think, man, all right, I hear number three is really good. And keep coming back because they build on each other, okay? But this is not Life Group Greek yet. This is an introduction lesson, an ATV. Now, that's not an all-terrain vehicle. In Life Group Greek, ATV stands for the alphabet, translation theory, and vocabulary. Those are the three things I want us to talk about this morning. I'm not real strong in my voice right now. It sounds like I've uh, been to, what Pastor David say, a Saturday night football game. I spent until I got home at 11.30 last night uh, deposing a doctor in Loveland, Colorado, who, if you're watching on the internet, I do have a soft side. <laughs> he did not like me yesterday. I spent a good bit of time trying to ask him why he doesn't tell the truth. So, <clears throat> I'm a little hoarse uh, from about 10 hours of nonstop talking. Um, anyway, alphabet, translation, theory, and vocabulary is what we're about today. Let's start with the alphabet. I'm not going to teach you the Greek alphabet because some of you have been showing me you've already learned it, and um, I'm stoked about that, but I do want to just cover a few letters to give you a feel for it. It's not hard. Everybody already knows the first two because it's the alphabet. All they did is leave the A off the alpha, beta. Alpha, beta, alphabet itself comes from those two letters, alpha and beta. And they look very much like the English A and the English B. So we have alpha, beta, and if you were here or if you've listened to the Phil Keggy song, you know it's alpha, beta, gamma. And so we have gamma as the third letter. That's a Greek G. Now you're thinking, why didn't the Greeks have a C? Their C was their K. So the K did double duty. 
So for example, you'll see one of the, I've given you, for those of you who are going to be real geek language nerds, I've given you on your handout a little thing to practice the alphabet. I took real Greek words. Let's go to the Elmo real quick. Great. Bauer Booth's ahead of me. I took real Greek words and turned them into, well, I didn't turn them into anything. I just put them down there. So you could read them and practice the letters. You see, this K is actually a C in English. It can be. I, that's an N. It looks like a V, but it's an N. And then that thing that looks like an N with a tail is a long E. So we'll just put an E. And that's an M and an A. Cinema is a Greek word. Um, Janet Seifert got real stoked over this because we had, I also put down this Greek word for her, B-A-C-T-E, and that P-looking thing's an R. They just messed up on a few of them. R-I-A. Bacteria is a Greek word. You've got more. I'm just going to give you three, and then you have to try the others on your own. But I want you to look at this one. I, D, E, A. She had a good idea of what it was. Miss Carolyn nailed that one. So you've got those. The answers are on the back. It's just something to play with. We go back to the PowerPoint. All I'm pointing to is these letters, it'll help you in the class. You don't have to know them. But it'll make class a little more fun. I'll try to put some games with it as we go along. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta. By the way, gamma, go back to the G. It looks like the way we were taught to write G's. We just doesn't have that loop. You kind of see that? And the tail even does go down below the line. So it's just the little loops missing. Other than that, it looks like a cursive G, which is good. The delta... Looks like our D. It just looks like you were drunk when you wrote the stick part. The stick part's got kind of a little weave to it. Okay? But other than that, it's still got the little uh, circle there at the bottom. So alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon. Easy. That's an E. So those are the first five letters of the Greek alphabet. You're almost home free once you get those. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon. A good bit to start with. I drew the line just to show you the B comes down a little bit below the line and so does the G. But uh, there they are. So you've got that. Now we're through with the alphabet part of this class. Let's move on. Translation theory. When I was a graduate from high school, 1978, the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas had a senior ceremony... Wonderful song this morning. Thank you for leading us in worship. The, the, the church gave all of us a new NIV, stands for New International Version, New Testament, with our names engraved on them. And I was a revised standard version man because I had my Harper Study Bible that you've always heard me talk about. That's the one I lost that I still haven't gotten over, that had all of my life of notes in it. But anyway, 
I got this from the church and I thought, well, this is a cool chance to read through the Bible or read through the New Testament again in this new Bible. I started reading through it and I found typos. Who has typos in the Bible? I mean, aren't you supposed to be able to do a Bible without typos? And so I got a little bit uh, put off. But uh, then I realized it was just an early edition. They ironed those out. Then in 2011, the publishers came out with a brand new, new international version, a new NIV. Now, I thought they should just call it the NNIV for the new NIV, the new, new international version, or do the N squared IV. But they didn't listen to me. They call it the 2011 NIV. And in it, they made some changes that a lot of people were really excited about. So, for example, Matthew 13, 32. Here's what it said in the old NIV. Though it, and it's talking about the mustard seed, is the smallest of all your seeds. But in the Greek, the word your is not in there. The translators just sort of added it. Because they thought in the context of things, he was talking to them about the smallest of your seeds. And he didn't, they, they, they wanted the reader in the 20th century of America not to look at it and say, the Bible has errors in it because there is a seed smaller than the mustard seed. Jesus did not know his, his plant, flora, and fauna adequately. And, and so to stop people from making that misjudgment, the translators put in your so that the reader would understand that, that Jesus is talking to those people about the smallest of their seeds. That's what they knew. And so that's the old. The new NIV took it out. And now it says, though it, the mustard seed, is the smallest of all seeds. And the new NIV just expects you to know that Jesus is talking to that audience and what they knew. That is one change, but that wasn't the headline change. The headline change is the 2011 went gender neutral. Now, that, I mean, just the sound of that. Some of you are like, oh, what's the world? Typos, and now it's gender neutral. Next, we'll have dogs and cats living together. (laughs) Which, by the way, we do at our house. Headlines. Southern Baptists reject updated NIV. And the Southern Baptist Convention did. They voted down on it. The Lutherans are the latest to reject the NIV over gender language. The Baptist bookstore, however, Lifeway, decided they'd still sell them, much to the chagrin of some others in the Baptist church. So, what on earth is going on? Well, I want to talk about that, but not yet. you got to get warmed up. Okay, so, if you look up in Wikipedia, you'll find a Wikipedia page that says, List of English Bible translations. And there's a list of them. And I counted them up. And when I counted up how many English translations of the entire Bible there are, by my count, there were 100 
and 4. Now, I think it's a very fair question. Why can't anyone get it right? Here's my Greek New Testament. (laughs) And I probably should make a copy because this is one I had in Greek class in college, so I have like a ton of notes in here. I'll probably leave it here today and lose it. Um, Actually, no, this is not that one. It's a good. I was smart enough not to bring that one. Anyway, Greek New Testament. Why can't someone get it right? A hundred and four? Well, yeah, you just can't get it right in that way. This is, this is an art. How many paintings are there of the same scene? You said, well, can't someone just get it right? Well, it's, an, it's got some art. It's got some art. So you got to be, well, let's talk about that for a moment. I'd like to think it's algebra. Let's go back to the Elmo for a moment. Look, algebra is easy. Some of it. Some, I said some of it. Three plus X equals five. What is X? Two. So every time we see X, we just need to plug in 2. Isn't Greek the same way? Every time we see this word, we're going to write a word for you and let you practice your Greek. That's what letter? A. N. N. This is a T-H. It's like a twofer letter. T-H-R-O-P-O-S. Anthropos. Anthropos. It means man. So every time we... Anthropology. The study of anthropos. Man. So every time we see anthropology, can't we just put man... What about this word? That's an L. O. G. O. S. Logos. Somebody in here is going to know word. In the beginning was the logos. Every time we see logos, can't we just put word? Let's go back to PowerPoint. Isn't this just algebra? It's not. Eugene Nida is very famous in this circle. He died about four years ago. And he coined some phrases about Bible translation that are helpful for you to know. He One phrase was called formal equivalence. The other phrase was called dynamic equivalence. Here is a range of things between these two terms. I want to explain the terms to you. When you're translating, Nida says you can go for formal equivalence or dynamic equivalence or something along the way in the middle. Formal equivalence is this. It's like I'm going to trace the Greek into English. 
So every time I have a Greek word, I'm going to put an English word. I'm going to follow the same Greek sentence structure. I'm going to use the same grammar. If it's passive, I'm going to make it passive verb. If it's indicative, I'm going to make it an indicative verb. I'm going to, I'm going to follow the same grammar and the words. And that's formal equivalence. It's just equivalent in its form. We're going the whole shebang. That's your King James. That's your English Standard Version. That's your New American Standard Version. Now, dynamic equivalents, they're not trying to match it just word for word. They have a whole different way of of looking at it. Dynamic equivalence is, what did the target audience hear when they heard this? Because it's different than the way we speak. Rigo, come up here. I need your help. Which mic works for Rigo? This one down here? All right. Rigo, I got a sentence here. This Rigo is going to save me from everybody laughing at my bad Spanish accent. Hola. Okay, pasa. Okay, hold on here. Ah, here it is. I need you to read this for the jury. Uh, for the jury. I'm sorry. I've been working all week. El reloj está caminando. Thank you. Appreciate it. Give Rigo a hand. That means the clock is walking, which in some Spanish-speaking areas is the way they say what we say, the clock is running. They just don't say running. They say walking. And Becky uh, has heard it with other appliances, heard it with cars in some places. Is your car walking? We say, is your car running? So you could translate that literally, is your clock walking? But the audience isn't going to understand. So you need to put it in something that the audience understands. Does that make sense? So that's what dynamic equivalence is. Dynamic equivalence is, what did the target audience hear? Now, let's go back to my word I've taught you. Anthropos. What does it mean? Man. Very good. Anthropos. Oh, no, 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 no. Back to the PowerPoint, please. Thanks. Good. Anthropos. Man. Or if it's plural, men. Now, think of it for a moment. This is an interesting word. In our language... You will hear us talk about the fall of man. Or anthropology, the study of man. 
But do you think for a moment when we talk about who's heard the expression, the fall of man, referencing Adam and Eve falling? Okay, but it's the fall of man. What about Eve? We use the word man to include both historically in the English language. But we live in a post-Helen-ready world. I just wanted to see who we could date. <laughs> Helen Reddy, I am woman, watch me. Da, 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 da. Remember her? Okay, I mean, we're post, I mean, this is a different world. In my legal writing, I do not use the word man to refer to both genders. And I try not to in front of a jury. And in a courtroom, they don't call the foreman the foreman anymore because women can serve on juries, which they could not do when that word first started. So now it's the four person. So the word man can mean both, but more and more politically correct in 2015 America You try not to use that word because it offends some folks. Now, I do not want my gospel to offend anybody because that's not what Jesus is about. And I have zero, I mean, I have four daughters and a wife. If I ever start war of the sexes, I'm dead. I got no shot. Not to mention the fact I treasure them all more than life itself. If this is what was behind the gender-neutral translation of the NIV, not taking man where it's meant to be men and turning it into something gender-neutral, but taking it in those contexts where the translators thought it meant to the audience something gender-neutral. So, for example, before I knew what Pastor David was preaching on this morning, I put into the lesson Matthew 4.19. He pulled it out of Luke. I could have used the Luke passage he had. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of anthropos in the Greek. Now, here's your question. Is Jesus only interested in salvation for the males? When Jesus said that, it's to be taken for men and women. So if you read that passage in a Bible with formal equivalents, they're going to translate it as men because formally, that's what formally, that's what that word means. Anthropos means men. And they're going to expect you to make the decision of whether or not in that context, Jesus is talking about something broader. But if you read it in the new NIV, it's Jesus says, I'll send you out so that you can catch people. And those are the changes. Now, where does that leave you and me? You can't say one is right and the other's wrong. 
what you can say is, do you want to translate word by word or do you want to translate thought by thought? There are some people who believe you translate paragraph by paragraph. And there are just these issues that come up and we'll get into them. We're going to have so much fun with them because it will really help us understand things as we move into the third subject, vocabulary. So this is now your taste for what is to come, some of what's to come. Vocabulary is pretty basic in a way. I mean, here's what we're asking. What does the word mean? That's what we want to know. What what does... Who's, do you speak any languages, John? English. I know your wife does. Miss Carrot, you speak languages? You speak German? All right. The young lady next to you, do you speak any languages? German? Cool. I can't do a lick of German. I can do nine, but I don't even think it's nine. Um, what? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's a German joke. I was in England, by the way, uh, getting an expert witness ready to testify, and I, I got to use my favorite British joke. And nobody ever laughs here, but it always gets a laugh there. Here it is. This is a freebie. I've got 30 seconds to throw it in there. We're talking language. It's a great illustration, actually, of the fun of language. I spoke in Lubbock for a moment, and I might have used some word like ain't. And this prim and proper British college professor looked at me, and I said, I know, I know, you're saying, doesn't he know the Queen's English? Well, of course she's English. What else would she be? (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) Sorry. So, the fun of language. What do the words mean? Now, I want to show you a picture. This is a fellow named Robert Caudry. Robert Caudry lived from 1538 to 1604. And if you're a Samuel Johnston fan, I hate to tell you this, but Robert Caudry did an English dictionary before Samuel Johnston. Yes. 1603, he published this dictionary. That's a real front page of the 1613 edition. There's only one copy of the 1603 to the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and they won't let me take a picture. Here's a 1613 edition, and I've blown it up a little bit. In your handout, I've put it into an English font because the letters just between 1613 and now, in our language, in English, over 400 years, the letters have changed. But it's not just the letters that have changed. The meaning of the words have changed too. And so you you can't just read a Greek passage in the New Testament and assume it means the same thing it did when Aristotle wrote 400 years earlier. We got to know not only what the Greek words mean, we got to know what they meant at that time period. So look at that. This is a table, alphabetical, That's alphabetical. That's the way they spelled it. Containing, containing, C-O-N-T-A-Y-N-I-N-G, and teaching the true writing and bunderflanding, because if the letter U was at the start of a word, it was shaped like a V. So that's pronounced under, standing. No. The letter S in the middle of a word looked like an F. It only looks like an S at the end of the word. 
By the way, Greek is the same. The letter S is different in the middle of a word than it is at the end of a word. So, a table alphabetical containing and teaching the true writing and vending of hard, visual English words. Now, the visual, since we know the V is a U, that's U, and that F is an S, use you all. But you see how the U is normal if it's in the middle of the sentence. And English, that's English, words. And look at words. S is normal at the end of the word. Borrowed from the Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and French. Now, I pulled out a page of it so that you could learn what an English word meant 400 years ago. The word extinct. It meant put out. Now, I could tell you about the time Becky was extinct with me. (laughs) But I'm not really sure it's going to make that much sense to you. Because words change meaning over time. By the way, extinct, we still get that meaning in a different form of the word. Before you leave, make sure you extinguish the candle. So, um, that was supposed to bring a great chortle of joy. Word. Okay, clearly we have got the wrong generation in here. Okay. Now, what do words mean? It changes over time. For example, in 1957, one of my favorite plays hits Broadway. West Side Story. Look at the difference in lyrics between 1957 and now. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and gay. Okay. And she's getting ready to go to the dance and meet the boys. Because gay has a different meaning today. If you walk up to someone and they say, you say, how are you? I feel gay. (laughs) Get ready. It's going to be a little different reaction than it would have been in 1957. Because words... Change meaning. In the English language, they do the same in the Greek. This is a Greek word. Skene. I'll put it in Greek letters. Skene. That first E is long and the last E is long. So S-K-E-N-E. Skene. Skene is the Greek word for tent. Now the Greeks were real into theater. And in theater, the actors would play different roles. But if you've ever seen a picture or been to an amphitheater, it's pretty out there. They weren't enclosed arenas. So for the changing rooms, for the actors, they erected tents. So the word skene, you can see it develop in the Greek language to start meaning the actor's changing tent, where they would change their clothes. Then they started using the space even better. They could erect the tent behind the stage and paint something on it. 
And so skene becomes the backdrop for the scenery. By the way, scenery, where does that word come from? Skene. Because that's skene, if you take that K and turn it into a C like we use in our alphabet, it becomes the scene. And even now, then it develops within a play to within the act, you have different scenes where the backdrop changes. See, so that word just changes over time. Now, this is a difficult thing for scholars because they got to figure out what the Greek New Testament words mean. How do they do it? Well, one thing they do is look in the Greek New Testament because those words get used in a number of different contexts. And so you can figure out a range or a semantic range of meaning for those words by looking at the different places it's used. But there are some words... It's a big linguistic word, hapax legomena. What it means is the word only occurs once. Now, it's really interesting in history. For a long time, there were a group of strong theologians and scholars who knew that the Bible's Greek was different in notable, significant ways than the Greek of Aristotle, of Plato, of Herodotus, of so many ancient Greek writers. And so, what these people would do is they call Bible Greek Holy Ghost Greek. Because they, some, a few, thought that the Holy Ghost had developed this specific language just to communicate the beautiful truths of Scripture. And while I admire their respect for Scripture and their Holy Spirit, That ain't what happened. But it took a while for scholars to figure that out. So the Greek New Testament is one place they'll look for the meaning of the words. Another place they'll look is the Greek Old Testament. Now the problem with that is it was written 200 years. Translated 200 years out of Hebrew before the New Testament. So you're looking at something already that's 200 years old in the vocabulary. But... The early church used that Greek Old Testament enough to where when you read New Testament writings, they're clearly using some of the same vocabulary the same way. A third way to look at it is look what the church fathers wrote. We studied some of the church fathers in here, but they would use some of the same vocabulary in the first few generations after the Bible was written. And so scholars will go look for the words there and try to gather what those words mean. And then something remarkable happened. A bunch of garbage paper was found in trash cans in Egypt. Ancient papyri. And not just in garbage cans in Egypt, but there is a massive assortment of ancient papyri, the papyri is, uh, uh, it's in your paper, you can read about it. I put it in a footnote. But the bottom line is, think ancient paper. And there's some scraps left, written at the time of Christ. And what the, the scholars started reading it, figured out, this is not high and mighty literature like Euripides or Agamemnon. Or one of these plays of of great note. There was an everyday street language. That's used in receipts. That's used with notes. Hey Beth. Say hi to your brother. Mark. 
used in a note. Larry, good to see you. Mark. You put it in a note. And they start looking at this and they realize the New Testament was not written in a Holy Ghost Greek. It was written in everyday Greek. This is the language everybody spoke. This was written for everybody to be able to read and understand. This wasn't written for the the high and mighty, highfalutin educated. Now, don't get me wrong. Different writers wrote differently. The book of Hebrews is pretty good Greek. Luke is pretty good Greek. Paul's Greek's fine, but it's just every day walking in the street Greek. He's out there. He doesn't want anybody to misunderstand him. And it's really fun to look at. So scholars are trying to figure out what these words mean. And then once you figure out what the words mean, you've got to figure out how to put it into English. Now, here's your problem there. I call it the funnel problem. And if you look that up on the Internet, you will not find it anywhere because I made it up. But I'm sticking with it. Here's the funnel problem. You want to take all this Greek, you want to take a Greek word and you want to put it into an English word, you don't realize it, it's not one-to-one. It's a funnel problem. Here, let me explain it this way. There's a Greek word, eros. Eros means love in an erotic sense, a physically stimulating love. There's another Greek word, phileo. Phileo is a friendship love. It's the love I have for Dale Hearn. I don't have Eros love for Dale Hearn. Not even close. But I have a Phileo love for him. He's a good friend. Agapao. We get, that's the verb. The noun is agape in in Texas talk. Agape. Way we'd say it and love it. Agapao is the verb. I love. There's another one. Philatuo. There are more beyond that. And do you know what we get to do with those when we put them into English? Love. I mean, we use the same word. I use the same word. For my beautiful, marvelous wife, I love you, Becky, that I use for our dog. I love Tizzy. (laughs) That I use for pizza. I might say I love pizza more than I love our dog. (laughs) But not as much as Becky. It's a whole different kind of love. You don't make that mistake in the Greek. Greek's got all these different kinds. So you take a passage like John 21, 15 through 17. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Jesus is using the word agapao. Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I love you as a brother. But Peter, do you agapao me? Lord, you know I phileo you. Third time, Jesus, Peter, do you phileo me? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. Now, there is a good, good debate over whether John's writing and changing those verbs up just because John likes a little variety in writing or whether he's really trying to target a difference in meaning between those. And the scholars debate back and forth. But you know what? If you read an English Bible, you don't get to be in the debate. 
It just says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. And you don't realize they're using two different words there. You lose the debate. How about John 1.1? Greek and English. Here's the Greek word, logos, or logos is the way I learned to say it. Pastor David doesn't like that. He likes logos. But we had different Greek teachers. Logos, logos. Hearn, you probably learned logos too. Logos, you were closer to Lubbock. He was in New Orleans. Enough said. Okay. Logos. Logos in the Greek. Let me give you some different words that are used in English in translating it. Word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about Jesus. Logos. Logos. Word. But you know that word logos can also be translated thought. In the beginning was the thought. It can be translated logic. In the beginning was the logic. It can be translated discourse, dialogue. In the beginning was the dialogue. It can be translated argument. In the beginning was the argument. So scholars have to look in the context to figure out what was trying to be conveyed by John and figure out what one English word they want to pick when that Greek word is used in so many different contexts. And scholars do that and they come up with in the beginning was the word, I think very legitimately. Now, that's the one-to-one problem that's there. In addition to the one-to-one problem, you know, how do you take one Greek word and turn it into one English word? It's not that easy. In addition to that, there are more problems on what a word means. There's the theology problem. Sometimes words are translated a different way for theology's sake. One good example is the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo, we get baptized from it. But literally, the word meant to put or go underwater. But a lot of churches don't baptize by putting and going underwater. And you'll find now, and historically, going back at least as far as Tyndall, that instead of translating the word into the English meaning, because it's a theological ritual, it's just translated baptize. Unless it's in a passage like Luke 11.38, where the question is, hey, before you eat, don't you wash? Don't you submerge your hands and get them clean? They didn't have running water the way we do. They stick it in a sink. Or in Isaiah 21, verse 4, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, translation, inundated. Same word. All right, sometimes we have trouble with culture. So there's a Greek word, pedagogos comes uh, from two different words. Paidos is a child and ago in Greek means to lead. The paidagogos was a, a person in Greek culture who would take a young baby and be responsible for rearing that child in front of the parents. Would teach them their manners. Would teach them what they needed to know to get ready for school. And once they became school age, would take that child to school, deliver them to the teacher, 
wait and take that child home so that the child got to school safely and got home safely. All right? Paul uses that word. How are you going to translate that? We don't have anybody like that here. So you'll find it in some translations, a guardian. In some, a tutor. In some, a schoolmaster. But it doesn't really match up to what that Greek person did. It's what Paul uses in Galatians when he says the law was your pedagogos to lead you to Jesus. The law taught you your manners and got you ready and delivered you to the, to the master safely. So, you know, you, 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 so we got cultural issues. Um, Hebraisms, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip that, but that's okay because when you get to life group Greek, we will look at some really good passages where this explodes the meaning of that. So I'm going to skip this, uh, but it would have really been interesting, but it's in your handout, so don't worry about it. Here's your Greek for home. Opa! In the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. The whole purpose, a whole purpose in John's writing is to explain to us that the mysterious, incredible God of the universe manifested himself as a human being so that we would know him. That's amazing. We would know God. See Jesus, see God. Amazing. And yet at the same time, even within that word itself, with so many different meanings, there's some level of mystery. We can truly know God, but we can never know God fully. And so in my life, as I worked through this lesson, one of the take-homes for me was I want clarity in my walk with God and my understanding of Scripture, but I'm never going to run from mystery. If I've got it all figured out, I'm wrong. There's a level to God that I will not grasp. Certainly not in this life. Point for home number two. Greek for home number two. Jesus, do you love me? He asked it of Peter three times. I know what the answer needs to be. Yes, I love you. That's my answer to the Lord. And I want it to be that way. And I'm going to study what that word love means. And I'm going to figure it out. Because Jesus is my everything. And last but not least. Here's one for you to take home. As a taster. A famous verse that many Protestants hang on to. Luther made this verse explode to me. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. Romans 3.21. N.T. Wright, one of the best Greek scholars that's a New Testament scholar around, who's a Pauline scholar as well, says that the translation of this is abhorrently wrong. Ah, I shouldn't use the word abhorrent. He doesn't use that word. It's wrong. In at least the NIV. The 2011 NIV. And he says it's wrong because Protestant theologians are reading their own theology into it. And not understanding the true justification that Paul taught. And you may be saying, what? That's just, hey, come back. That's what this class is all about. We'll talk about that when we reach the point. So that's your teaser. If you're memorizing, 
you're up, and some of you are. Look, I don't think most of you are. Let's not play games about this. But some of you are. And boy, at the end of the year, are you going to be honored and recognized by this class? Let me pray over you. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to study together. Thank you for the richness of your word, the clarities that we can get by studying it, but also the mystery, Father, that that also deepens as we just get entranced by who you are and what you've done and the ways you show your love to us. I pray that you'll bless everyone here who hears this message and quicken in their hearts and in their minds and their spirits a desire to know you more and to study more. Lord, help my preparation be what it needs to be to help everybody who listens to these messages grow before you in faith, in holiness, in peace, in righteousness, in goodness, in joy, in all of the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. That's my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.